A number of years ago, I was teaching on a stewardship theme, and someone said to me afterwards and had a little bit of attitude in their voice. They said, well, how much does God really want? Well, I'm going to try to address that question this morning by telling, us, telling you a story. I want you to imagine this scene. <clears throat> Jesus has just had a, had a rather tense uh, confrontation with some of the religious leaders. He heads to the temple with his disciples, and they sit down near where the offerings are being received. Now, the offerings in the temple were received in a different manner than we are used to here. Uh, the temple had 13 offering boxes, and each of them was shaped like a trumpet. And each one had a different purpose. There was a box for contributions to the building fund. There was a box for contributions to the priest's salary. One was for helping the poor. Whatever the purpose, there was a box for the people's offering. When each individual went up to put their tithe or offering into the box, they would announce the amount of their gift and what purpose it was for. They might say, $500 for the building fund or $200 for the hunger relief fund. And that's where we pick up the story in Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave in a tiny part of their surplus but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Now this short exchange between Jesus and his disciples teaches us a powerful lesson about how much God really wants from us. And interestingly enough, it goes way beyond money. The main example in this passage is money, but it extends to all other aspects of our life. It relates to our time, to our abilities, to our responsibilities, as well as our money, and the principles taught in this passage include all aspects of our life as it relates to our service to God. It seems kind of preposterous that Jesus would say, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. That to me seems like kind of crazy talk, especially when we consider that in the original language, what Jesus really said was in this one act of giving, the widow gave more than all the other people gave combined in their lifetime. Two measly copper coins worth less than one cent are said to be worth more than thousands of dollars. How can that be? That much money wouldn't buy anything. What can you buy these days for a penny? I remember when I was a kid, there were some places that still had penny gumball machines, but I haven't even seen one of them in years. There's not much we can buy for one cent today. To fully understand and appreciate what Jesus meant, we have to realign our thinking a little. You see, we are so enamored in our society with the size of wealth, aren't we? Fortune magazine and Forbes publish lists of the wealthiest companies, the wealthiest individuals. We hear reports of the large salaries given to professional athletes and entertainers. We hear about the great generosity of people who give thousands of dollars to charity or to a university. The bigger the gift, the better. But that's not how Jesus was looking as, at it as these events unfolded. 
There are several ways that we can apply this story to our lives. The first principle that we learn from this story is that real giving must always be sacrificial. Some years ago, during his gubernatorial campaign in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger was criticized for some apparent anti-Semitic comments. In his defense, it was noted that he gave $1 million to the Simon Wiesenthal Center that remembers the Holocaust and seeks to avoid something similar in the future. Arnold was praised for his generous spirit of giving $1 million. But he was paid about $30 million for his role in Terminator 3. Add that to all the money he ever made from his movie roles over the years, and that's a pile of money. And while it's great that Arnold made that kind of contribution to a worthy cause, it really was no sacrifice for him. To us, a million dollars might seem like a lot, but to him it was pocket change. Giving a million dollars was not sacrificial, but rather something very comfortable. And what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here is this, that real giving must have this element of sacrifice. The truth is that the amount of the gift doesn't matter. Do you ever think you'd hear a preacher say that? The amount of the gift doesn't matter, or at least as much as the sacrifice behind the gift. While the Bible doesn't tell us how much the others put in the offering box, it does say that they gave large sums. And that would lead us to believe that these were contributions that the, to the average citizen would be a lot of money. Their contributions were sizable. Remember, Jesus was a, was a carpenter. His disciples were fishermen. They would not have been accustomed to having large sums of money. The, temp the people at the temple that day were probably rather proud of their sizable gifts. With great pride, they tried to outdo each other. They impressed each other with their contributions. The priests probably were also pretty impressed with the big gifts. After all, they were thinking of all the good they could do with that kind of generosity. However, there was one individual who was not so impressed with the large contributions, and that was Jesus. Jesus was not in the least impressed. He noted, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus. This was money that they would never miss. They would certainly still have enough money to go buy food and buy clothes. They would have plenty left over for the luxuries of life. They gave big amounts of cash, but it was no sacrifice at all for them. And here was Jesus' point. God doesn't look at the amount that we give. He considers the sacrifice behind the gift, and that's what ultimately matters. Standing in sharp contrast to the wealthy folks who piled their money into the offering boxes came this poor widow who had virtually two worthless copper coins to put in the offering that day. The word poor here literally means someone who had few resources. This widow had nothing. Now, at this time in history, being a widow usually meant that you were destitute. You were living at the mercy of someone else who may or may not help you out. There were no life insurance policies to take care of someone after a death. There was no Social Security, no Medicare. The widow was left to make money any way she could, provide food any way that she was able. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how she obtained these two copper coins, maybe some kind person had pity on her, gave them to her. Maybe she had sold something that she had made. Maybe she found them on the side of the road. It really doesn't matter how she got them. The fact is that she gave everything she had. Jesus said of this widow's gift, she, she poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. See, the abundance of the rich folks meant 
they gave from their excess. The poverty of the widow demonstrated her lack. She had next to nothing, and she gave every bit of it. And again, we are confronted with the truth here that sacrifice is what matters in our gifts to God. As we look in the mirror, we must ask ourselves, is my giving truly sacrificial? You know, today we might sacrifice for things that we really want, maybe a, a new car, maybe our first home, those things that will not last forever. But we can't seem to bring ourselves to sacrifice for the eternal kingdom of God. The giving that God blesses is sacrificial. But the second truth that we learn from this story is that real giving has a certain recklessness to it. Who would begrudge this woman keeping one of those coins? She would still have something, even though it wasn't much. She would still have given half of what she had, and half was still proportionally more than the others gave. It's not likely that the others gave half of their wealth. But this widow displayed a certain recklessness with her gift. She gave all that she had. There was nothing left to buy food. She displayed ultimate faith. She displayed a faith that is rare in our culture today. See, I doubt that many of us as American Christians have ever had to demonstrate that kind of faith. But she gave every bit of what she had to God. She gave her savings. She gave her retirement fund. She gave her rainy day fund. Whatever you want to call it, she gave it all to God, and she was relying on God to supply her needs. And most of the time, we like to rely on ourselves to supply our needs, don't we? Too often, we play it safe. We play it safe when we give to God with the attitude that I'll give this amount, but I'll hold a little back just in case God doesn't come through for me. See, we hedge our bets in case God drops the ball. And this applies to more than money. It applies to our service to God as well. We play it safe. We want to stay in our comfort zone. We don't really believe that God will help us. But what we're really saying is we don't rely on him. And we believe that God is ultimately powerless to meet our needs. We get comfortable in our own little corner of the world doing what we've always done, giving what we've always given, and we don't take that next step of faith. The reality is that a lot of us believe that we can manage our affairs better than God can. We don't believe that God can navigate us through this life as well as we can. You know, it would be like being on an airplane and trying to take the controls over from the pilot. You know that many people don't fly simply because they can't control the situation? But all the statistics agree air travel is safer than driving in a car. More people are killed in car accidents each year than killed in airplane accidents, but the fact is that many people don't like to fly because they're not in control. You see, it would be ridiculous for me to try to take the controls from the pilot. I have no idea how to fly an airplane. I would be in control, but I would be in control of an airplane that would soon be making a rapid descent toward the ground. We like to play it safe. We like to drive our own car. We like to be in control. We want to be in charge of the situation. We want to set the agenda and be in the driver's seat. And there's nothing, that's nothing more than our sinful nature that keeps coming through. Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, Satan, in the form of the serpent, confronts Eve and he says, You won't die. If you, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat the fruit of that tree. And you will be like God and you will know good and evil. 
See, God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree, but Satan said that if they ate it, they would be in control of their life. And he said that they would be like God. They would be in the driver's seat. The problem is God's the one who wants to be in the driver's seat of our life. And as a result of that, we must get out of the driver's seat and, and make the final surrender to God. You see, we have to get out of the way. We have to allow God to have control of our lives. The truth is that our giving to God is not a financial issue. It never is. It's a spiritual issue. And it's a matter of whether or not we are going to be completely obedient to God, completely surrendered to God, and it seems like so often we find some way to keep things from God. I've heard the analogy of the Christian life being compared to a house. You know, when we invite Jesus into our life, we invite him to come into the living room, but we keep all the other doors to all the other rooms locked. Eventually, we unlock a door here or there, maybe for him to enter. We surrender different aspects of our life, but there always seems to be uh, that part that we hold back from God. But God wants complete control of our life, and that means that we have to completely surrender our life to him. God doesn't want our commitment as long as it's comfortable for us. He wants control. And that isn't a comfortable proposition for many of us. But Jesus never promised a comfortable life to his followers. In fact, Jesus said, your life's going to get more difficult. He said that the world will hate you because it hated him. And he said that we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. Surrender is never easy because it involves giving up the control of our lives to God. But God wants complete control, not only of our finances, but our personal life, our work life, every part of our life. But then there's a third thing that we learn in this story, and that is that real giving must be generous. We see in this story that the widow was an extremely generous person. Again, it comes down to the amount of the sacrifice involved in the gift. Generosity is never measured by the size of the gift, but by the motive, the sacrifice behind the gift. We must not be giving grudgingly. We shouldn't say, well, I guess I've got to put my offering in this week. It's something we shouldn't be moaning and groaning about. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, you must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly. Don't give in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. I can almost see the smile on that poor widow's face as she dropped the coins in the offering box that day. It meant the world to her that she was able to do something to help advance the kingdom of God. And I can see the others giving with a great deal of reluctance. It's interesting that Jesus would hold up this poor widow as an example of generosity. And I think that offers us a measure of comfort. We may feel like we don't have much. We may look at the wealthy and they give large sums of money to charities and other things and think, well, you know, I'd never be able to make that kind of contribution. But we're left to think about what we would do if we had a large sum of money. We'd give some to the kids' school or the Red Cross or the church or the alma mater or the list goes on. Sometimes we're struck, stuck thinking that we can't do anything because we don't have enough. You know, we may be tempted to think that we aren't a large church or as, as some churches are much larger and we can't do what some churches can do. But let me tell you, tell you a story. A few weeks ago... Um, we took an Easter offering, and part of that offering uh, went to support five local United Methodist churches in the city of Flint that are assisting their people in the current water crisis. I had the privilege this last week to sit with two of those folks 
who are serving one of those churches and, and uh, hear their story about how they're ministering, not just to their congregation, but to the community around them. Part of that Easter offering is to send kids in, in this church to summer church camps. And you gave over $12,000 to that special Easter offering. Now, we might be tempted to say 12,000 won't go as far as we'd like it to go in supporting these causes, and it, that may be true, but we contributed uh, in the water case to a fund that many other churches are also contributing to. And we could look at it like, you know, we need to add a lot more to solve all the problems in the city of Flint and pay more of the costs of camp, and, but I prefer to look at it another way. That $12,000 may be just the amount needed to make a difference in somebody's life. It may be the difference in, the, in, in, in whether a life has changed or not of a student who goes to camp. We may be tempted to say that our talents and our money really don't amount to much, but we have to realize that we're part of something that's larger than us individually. We're part of something that is larger than this local church. We're part of the body of Christ. And Jesus never praised anybody for giving large sums of money. He praised the widow for being faithful and relying on God to meet her needs. And the widow's two copper coins weren't much from the standpoint of the temple balance sheet that week, but they were huge from the standpoint of God's balance sheet. And if we give what we have, God will do great things. When we give what we have and commit it all to God, great things begin to happen. There's an old hymn that says, little is much when God is in it. When we're contributing to something that is of God, no matter how much we give, it will be multiplied over and over again for the benefit of God's kingdom. You know, all four Gospels in the New Testament tell the same story about Jesus feeding a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves of bread and two small fish. This young boy was so excited about seeing Jesus that he came with his lunch that day of five loaves and two fish, and when he realized the need of the people to eat, he approached one of Jesus' disciples, and he offered that small lunch. But how could he expect that that meager lunch would make a dent in the hunger of thousands of people? But you know, Jesus honored that gift. He multiplied what he gave, and it fed a crowd of over 5,000, and after they had all had their fill of fish and bread. The Bible says the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of food that were left over. The leftovers were more than what they began with. And you see, when we give all to God, when we give it all to God, he multiplies what we give. It becomes bigger than what we had in the beginning. And if we give what we have, God can do great things. God can do much more than we can imagine. The boy that day had no idea that his meager lunch would be multiplied to feed a multitude. And we have seen through the account of the poor widow's offering that real giving must be sacrificial, has a certain amount of recklessness to it, and it must be given generously. God takes what we give, and when we give it in complete obedience to him, he multiplies it more than we can imagine. It all comes down to whether or not we're going to surrender control of our life to God. If God is going to be in control of our lives, it means that we, he needs to be in control of every single aspect of our life we can't allow ourselves to be holding things back. So in answer to the question, how much does God really want? He doesn't necessarily want all of our money. He just wants all of us. Because obedience is what brings the blessing. Amen.